0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Mo News podcast. We wanted to feature a few of our favorite conversations from the last year during this holiday week. One of the more interesting conversations I had this past year was with author Colin Dickey. He has a book out on conspiracy theories and American history uh, and how conspiracy theories go back to before the founding of the nation. It didn't start with QAnon, folks. It started with George Washington, before George Washington. But really what he gets at is that there's been no part of American history where we haven't believed in some sort of larger conspiracy that includes George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, a fear of immigrants, whether they were Catholic, Chinese, Italian, Irish, Jewish, and of course through today to immigrants coming in from Latin America. I think you will find this conversation fascinating, eye-opening. If you're a lover of American history, you like to get at what makes us tick and why uh, things are the way they are. Definitely take a listen today to this conversation. Before we get started here today, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one. Uh, By becoming a member, you get all interviews, extra content, as well as deep dives, your questions answered on a members-only Instagram account. It's a way to get that extra content, but also support independent journalism, support what we're doing here at Mo News to help keep the free daily podcast, free daily newsletter, and all of the content on the main Instagram feed going and growing every day. You can get access to Mo News Premium right now over at mo.news slash premium, just $7 a month or $70 a year. That's two free months on the annual package. We're also offering a 30-day free trial right now, a free month with the code Trial. All right, with that, here's today's conversation. All right, Colin Dickey joins me now. He's a cultural historian, the author of multiple books on uh, the mysterious and our connection to them. Uh, aliens, ghosts, uh, and now he's written this book, "Under the Eye of Power: How the Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy." Um, Colin, good to be talking to you today. Oh my God! Thanks so much for having me on. So I wanted to mention, you know, you've written about aliens. That's a hot topic these days in Washington. You've been following the developments there.
1: I have. Yes, yes. People are very excited about aliens right now, and um, they will again in the future, no doubt. So.
0: But let's get to your new book here uh, about secret societies, conspiracies, how they shape our democracy. This is something that comes up in the news all the time. I feel like I'm trying to slap down various conspiracies on a weekly basis, daily basis, depending on the week. Uh, It often revolves around they are trying to do something. They are trying to control us. Um, What inspired you to dive into this topic?
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, my last book was on aliens, um, among other things, uh, you know, cryptids and the lost city of Atlantis, I was sort of interested in these kind of borderland places where, you know, monsters would hide. Um, and, in the course of writing that book in the course of, of writing a sort of history of our fascination with, with both, you know, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster and also aliens. One of the things that, that struck me was that, you know, if you, you either believe in the Loch Ness monster, or you don't, whatever. Um, but you don't. Nobody believes that the the lack of definitive proof of, of the Loch Ness monster is due to a government cover up. Uh, whereas, if you believe in aliens, I think it is axiomatic that you also believe in some kind of government cover up. I don't know anybody who believes that you know aliens are real, but that you know their existence has not been you know monitored, tracked, suppressed somehow by by government forces.
0: Well, and and frankly, that was a subject of recent congressional hearings. I mean, with sure, yeah, yeah very specific yeah. accusations.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And those accusations go back since, you know, the forties, you know, through the the modern sort of UFO um, you know, kind of excitement. And this is why, you know, the 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 story that everybody was very excited about about this idea that um, you know, now we have this guy, you know, an, an intelligence officer is on the record. His name is on the record. He's filed a whistleblower report. And, you know, people are sort of like, oh my God, this has never been done before. Nobody, we've never heard from somebody in the in the government saying that there's a government conspiracy. Um except that we we have and we do on the regular. Um, there's a there's a book from 1951 by Donald Kehoe uh where he interviews uh a number of of Air Force and uh Navy you know officers who allege that there's a cover up. So this is this has been with us. It's sort of you know that's why I said it sort of cycles constantly. We sort of forget that you know somebody has gone on the record and we forget that nothing came of it. So in five years from now somebody will come forward and and say on the record, you know, I, the government is covering things up and everybody will say, well, well this has never happened before because they'll have completely forgotten mm. summer of 2023. Like they forgot the summer of 2017 and the summer of 2004, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, um, so, so that book to go back to answer your question, I mean, that book sort of ends kind of in the world of conspiracy and conspiracy theories um, and, and sort of how, our fascination with with wonder and with um, you know the the idea that there could be something more out there in the world, something beyond science or religion, you know, quickly becomes you know paranoid, for lack of a better term. And so, uh, with this book, it, you know, it's it's in some ways a, a continuation, although the focus is very different. But it was again an attempt to sort of understand why we are attracted to and fascinated by you know, as you put it this idea of them, this idea of a, of a group that is invisible to the naked eye, but somehow their effect is everywhere. Uh, and, and that, you know, the way people construct these stories around either, you know, completely fictitious secret societies like the Illuminati or, you know, daycare Satanists or, you know, very real, you know, groups or ethnicities or societies, but, you know, who are totally benign, you know, the Freemasons, the Jews, et cetera, I was really fascinated by that, that that need to sort of create a kind of mythical resonance to these these uh, secret groups. And that's 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 what drove the book.
0: The first line of your book, the United States was born in paranoia. You talk about how, you know, we think of a couple of these panics, whether the witch trials, et cetera, is aberrations. But you write there is American is apple pie. Sort of takes me to the Mark Twain quote the history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you take us through. Four centuries of American history. Talk to me about that line. The U.S. was born in paranoia. Conspiracies are as American as apple pie.
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, like that. Um, again, when I started this book, I think the I held the common belief that I think a lot of people believe that you know um, Trump in 2016 was was something of an anomaly. It was the first time we had a American president who was openly espousing. Conspiracy theories, um, and and everybody's like, wow, this is you know this has never happened before. And so when I again when I started to do the research, it, oh no, this has happened repeatedly. You know, what I mean, um, Nixon was of course a famous anti semite, um,
0: right? Many of those caught on audio tape.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, as it turns out, you know, like sort of you know rose to the presidency on the back of a conspiracy theory that I talk about in the book um, that you know at the time was referred to as as the slaveocracy that. Um, slave owners, powerful slave owners in the South had infiltrated the American government um, and had corrupted it from within. Um, But also, you know, to go back to the very beginning, George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, all in various ways, uh, were, if not open subscribers, at least amenable to the the idea that the Illuminati um, had not only destroyed France and was responsible for the, the bloody end of uh, the French Revolution, but uh, were at any moment going to infiltrate the United States. This was sort of a, you know, a common thing. There's also, you know, a number of conspiracy theories that were floated around the time of the American Revolution, that the whole thing was a put on by France to distract England and divide its resources so that England, or so that France could conquer England. So these things...
0: So it's interesting. So forget 2016, yeah. you know, you talk about the election of 1800, you talk about the Illuminati, you talk about George Washington believing there's a cabal behind King George III Third. Um, talk to me more about that, you know, like, let's begin with the Illuminati. Who are the Illuminati? Because that's one of the kind of original, uh, theories that's out there that still stands today.
1: Right. So, yeah. So the Illuminati was like basically just a, it was a fraternal secret organization in Bavaria modeled on the Freemasons. They, um, you know, sort of upper class Bavarian men who were interested in things like equal rights for women, birth control, atheism, um, When is this? things like that. Uh, this is the 1770s okay. uh, so they're only around for about 9 years before the Bavarian government you know infiltrates them and then and then suppresses them and you know sort of drives them out of existence that is the end of the illuminati as a as a literal legitimate organization 1789 or something like that
0: this was fresh for the people of the george washington era sure but it but it was not
1: international news it was not anything that anybody knew about or anybody cared about um until the french revolution and um a Catholic priest um, named Borel, who was looking at what had happened in France, looking at his country, looking at how you know the the church had been sort of you know driven out by these violent, bloody um, you know atheists, and in an attempt to sort of understand what had happened, he proposed this theory that you know what if this this organization that was has been defunct in Bavaria for a decade actually secretly lived and was responsible for the French Revolution, and sort of advocates the the first kind of conspiracy theory that. The Illuminati uh, were responsible for for the French Revolution and and by extension could influence world events from behind the scenes.
0: So the Illuminati
1: is the first QAnon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, unless you want to go back to Salem, in which case, like, you know, witches, you know, I mean, like what, you know, Salem is is very similar to, you know, QAnon in the sense of like, you know, what if your neighbor who just looks like a normal everyday housewife, Goody Brown, you know, is secretly in league with the devil and doing weird sex stuff in the forest. And that's why your cow died. You know, like that's, it's it's all there. You know, it's all in Salem. And,
0: and these witch trials, this is the 16, we're going back another hundred years now to nearly 350 years ago um, in Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and again, what I talk about in the book is that I think historically we have this tendency to look at Salem and McCarthy and we look at, you know, as the two kind of like, you know, Aberrational moments in American history when things got a little out of hand, people got swept up in paranoia. And the only reason we talk about McCarthy, frankly, is because I think Arthur Miller's *The Crucible* gets taught, and it, again, it connects it to Salem. State you're you're talking
0: Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin, yeah. 1950s yes. communist panic in the U.S.
1: Yeah, the Red Scare in the 50s. So we we look at we look at the Salem witch trials, we look at the Red Scare of the 50s, and we say these were two moments when paranoia swept the community, the country, things got out of hand and innocent people were persecuted. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, in your, you know, referencing Mark Twain, I mean, yeah, like this happens, you know, this rhymes over and over again. We see, we see the the blueprint of QAnon. And, you know, what I talk about in the book is we see the blueprint of QAnon, not just in Salem and, you know, the Illuminati panic of the 1790s, but, the anti-Catholic panic of the 1830s, the rise of the Second Klan in the 1920s. So these the the these things sort of appear over and over again and, and what the book attempts to do. And, you know, again, we can talk about these individually, but, you know, just as a sense, like, you know, the book attempts to sort of connect these things and say these were not, in fact, one-offs sort of, um, you know, outside the norm. These are, in fact, baked into how Americans run society
0: is there something i mean you mentioned the illuminati thing sort of comes out of europe is there something uniquely american here i don't know if you've been able to do a comparative study here but in terms of uh american ethos versus you know are the british are the italians are the russians are they i you know are other societies as prone to this as we are oh
1: i mean definitely they are yeah and certainly every society has its conspiracy theories i um, when you write about sort of urban legends and fringe topics, I think it helps to be a member of that community. I think I try and stay away from statements like, you know, the Italians believe or, yeah. you know, Hindus think this because I I just I would not put myself in a position to say those things, which is why I decided for the for this book and my last two to really focus on on American uh, subcultures. But what i will say is that the two aspects of america that are not unique to america but certainly really exacerbate this i think there are two things uh one of which is is democracy frankly you know i mean again like the the 2020 election being the most obvious example when the election doesn't go your way it is it can be very tempting for some people to disregard the results and say instead uh there is a conspiracy uh, a cabal of elites has stolen the election from us, you know, and it, you know, and that's a thing that gets trotted out. I remember getting trotted out in, um, you know, 2004 when Kerry lost to Bush being told that, you know, Karl Rove had stolen Ohio and, and these kinds of things. So, um, so that's one thing I think democracy just sort of breeds that receptivity for conspiracy theories. The other thing, which again, is not unique to America, but is, is really baked into our DNA is that these conspiracy theories are often used to, um, mitigate the cultural prominence of, of new immigrants. So whenever there's a new wave of immigrants and, um, you know, Americans who are here view them with suspicion or distrust or do not want to sort of assimilate their culture, um, oftentimes conspiracy theories will, will swirl up around them, around, you know, the Catholics or the Italians or even the Irish, um, certainly, um, you know, Muslim Americans, certainly Jewish Americans, like we've seen this, again and again. So those things are, are by no means unique to America, but they're really part of who we are.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about immigration in a second, uh, but back to the late 1700s there, uh, we discussed briefly the Illuminati, and uh, I would love for you to kind of discuss, you talk about the election of 1800 uh, and um, the various conspiracies. I mean, I'm fascinated because we're going into another election cycle here. And, you know, every election cycle, it feels, in, at least in the modern age, but it looks, looks like it went back to the origins of this country, have general conspiracies about them, they, what the other side will do to us, who the uh, other major candidate is in league with. Um, take us back to that Jefferson Adams election.
1: Right. So, and again, this was a thing I found so fascinating because I think for, you know, like many people, I thought that 2016 was really the first election that we were going to see. That was where the actual sort of discourse was being, um, controlled and mobilized through conspiracy theories of various kinds. But, um, 1800s was the, the third presidential election, the first contested one after Washington chose not to run for a third term. Um, so, uh, what, what happened was the, the, the panic of the Illuminati having, uh, supposedly caused the French revolution sort of seeped over to the United States. Um, John Adams supporters in the Northeast, um, places like, you know, people like Timothy Dwight, who was the, the president of Yale university and, um, Jedediah Morse, who was Samuel Samuel Morse, the Telegraph inventor's father, um, began um, sort of spreading this conspiracy theory that the Illuminati had had infiltrated America through the Free, Freemasons. That Thomas Jefferson uh, could not be trusted; that he was a, a stooge for the Illuminati, uh, and they they started sort of whipping up a panic about this. Um, the The 1798 passage of the Alien and Sedition Act was in part. Motivated by a fear of foreign saboteurs, Uh, you know the Illuminati aren't named in the act, but that was the kind of thing that was very prevalent at the time. This idea that there there are foreign nationals who are bent on destroying American democracy uh, and they are infiltrating us on the on the regular, and we must protect against them. Um, What happened ultimately, though, which which again I found very fascinating, um, was that. A uh, a priest who, or uh, he wasn't a priest, but he was a, a, a sort of, I think, like a Presbyterian minister of some kind who was sort of disgraced and sort of ran out of New England because he sort of didn't fit the culture. Ended up in Philadelphia. Um, was a supporter of John, of Jefferson, or at least was was not a supporter of John Adams and his allies, and began publishing articles, basically turning the accusation back against adam supporters back against uh you know timothy dwight and Jedediah morse accusing them of being part of the illuminati um and and it turns out that this kind of like paranoid accusation really you know is the first time people sort of realized you didn't really have to have any sort of evidence or or even like a stable ideology you could just point at your political opponent and say there's something fishy about these guys perhaps they're in league with with a foreign power Um, And it 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 took off and it worked. And, you know, so these two rival presidential uh, candidates or at least their camps were were banding accusations that the other one was a member of the Illuminati or at least a stooge of the Illuminati. Um, And it it, uh, played a significant part in the election of eighteen hundred.
0: One other secret group that gets a lot of attention are the Freemasons. Um oftentimes, you know, I'll go take a walking historical tour of a city or some sort of historical tour, and they'll be like, you know, X was a Freemason and Y was a Freemason. And this was built by the Freemasons. And it never seems like anyone I ever speak to has like a firm grasp of who these people are, and they're still couched in mystery after all these centuries. Sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, so they start as a literal trade union um who are uh, you know for stone cutters, um hence the name, you know, people who work in stone. Um, and, uh, you know, in the 12th or 13th century, something like that, it's their, their actual origins are, are a little sort of lost to time, but, um, at some point they begin accepting sort of non, non non-actual Masons into the Freemasonry, you know, men who are not, you know, uh, tradesmen. Um, and again, how, and when that happens is, is, uh, again, sort of lost to history. We don't exactly know. We know the first guy to sort of sign up for the Freemasons who clearly wasn't a Mason, uh, was a Scottish uh, alchemist sort of nobleman in the 16th century. Um, But, you know, was he the first? It's hard to say. It's just the first we know of. Um, By the time Freemasonry comes to America, which it comes to um, pretty early and, you know, after the uh, uh, Europeans start, you know, sort of uh, colonizing and and displacing uh, native cultures, We have this organization, which is a tightly bound uh, fraternity of upper class men um, who sort of swear an oath to secrecy. So their, uh, their meetings are private. Um, It, and it has become a a great place for forward progressive thinkers to meet and be, again, be able to discuss things like democracy or atheism without fear that, you know, the, the King's, um, you know, henchmen are going to find out and, you know, stick them in jail. So it, it, attracts a kind of free thinker, you know, somewhat of a radical person, um, you know, who wants to be able to sort of discuss ideas without sort of being afraid of, of being found out. Um, and when it comes to America, you know, what I, again, what I, what I was not expecting to find in the book, what I found really fascinating was that Americans, they, you know, at least the, found, the founders who were trying to figure out how to sort of, you know, create this new country – they didn't want the hereditary aristocracy of the British. They, they wanted to reject this idea that you had to be born into it. But they also clearly wanted a hierarchy. They wanted, you know, to, they wanted a kind of cast of elites. Um, and I think, you know, somebody like Benjamin Franklin, sort of one of the most famous Freemasons, as somebody who saw himself as a kind of first among equals, you know, I mean, and not even in a kind of obnoxious way, just in the sense of like, you know, very civic minded, very much, you know, founding, uh, you know, fire departments and libraries and really sort of like putting himself out as like, you know, there needs to be a kind of leading group of, of American citizens who will sort of set the tone. And belonging to the Freemasons was a way of uh, sort of signifying caste and, um, you know, a sort of elite status without it having anything to do with, um, you know, ancestry or, or birth. Um, and that's that's sort of why people like um, Franklin wanted to join. That's why, you know, uh, George Washington, who was not born into money and was sort of a solidly middle class dude, but it was a, an inveterate social climber, knew that one of the great ways to get ahead in, in America was by joining the Masons, which he did. So that's that's kind of who they are um, in the 18th century. By the 19th century, they start to sort of change dramatically as their numbers grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, they're less able to maintain that sort of aura of, of elites and, you know, being firsts
0: among equals. All right, there's a lot more ahead in today's conversation. But first, a quick break from one of our partners here at Mo News, Factor Meals. You've heard us talk about them before on this podcast. We're loving them. They are chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals that are sent directly to your home, never frozen. They go straight in the fridge and then are ready to go after just two minutes. All you have to do is heat and enjoy. Um, As we're all celebrating holidays right now, the last thing you need is more meal prep, more work in the kitchen beyond the big holiday meals. And that's why we're loving Factor right now as a partner. Uh, We love their choices. More than 35 chef-crafted meals every week. They support healthy lifestyle choices. As I mentioned, they're approved by dietitians, And they're not just for dinner. They have lunch options, breakfast items, grab-and-go snacks. They also have ready-to-drink cold-pressed juices and shakes and smoothies. And they have a great deal right now for the Mo News community. You can head to factormeals.com. That is factor, F-A-C-T-O-R, meals.com, slash mo News 50 When you go to factormeals.com slash monews50, use the code monews50 to get 50% off your order. Again, the code is monews5050 over at factormeals.com slash monews50 for 50% off this holiday season. Get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Again, they're ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. I want to talk immigration here. Um, and how that's played into panics and conspiracies through the years you mentioned um the uh anti-catholic uh push 1830s through 1850s that you know as we start to see immigrants come in from germany from ireland um especially as sort of the the protestant majority in the country started to be outnumbered in cities especially and then the theories related to you know we're gonna be enslaved by the pope or the fact that you're catholic means you can't partake in a democracy um because you know ultimately you report to the pope by the way this came even in the JFK election, right, in 1960, um, as he became the first um, Catholic elected president. Uh, What I found fascinating, and I want to discuss the Catholic thing, but also the grooming accusations against Catholics. It's fascinating because we sit here today and the headlines are related, especially when it comes to the LGBT community, trans community, grooming. They're groomers, they're groomers. Uh, You know, Tom Hanks is a pedophile groomer. Oprah is a pedophile groomer. And you trace this back 200 years, the early 1800s and the anti-Catholic panic.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, so in 1834, there's a convent outside of Boston in what is now Somerville next to Cambridge um, where the well-heeled elite of, you know, Protestant Boston send their daughters to be educated, the Ursuline the Convent. Um, and... Um, there is a growing suspicion in the early decades kind of you know as you're just saying that you know as more and more Catholics are coming to the United States that Catholics cannot be trusted to participate in American democracy that they are being given their marching orders by a foreign power the Pope um, and that their allegiance to Catholic dogma trumps their um, allegiance to American democracy and thus they they can't be they can't be trusted and they shouldn't be allowed to be citizens and again this is Verbatim, the same playbook that is now being used against uh, Muslim Americans and, and Sharia law. This idea that you know Muslim Americans will you know follow Sharia law over American laws, and thus are sort of bad American citizens. So this was this was originally used against Catholics. So this kind of conspiracy theory starts to develop that the 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 Catholic priest through the confessional is able to exert a kind of control over women that is kind of half blackmail. Half mind control, and and that Catholic uh, priests are subjugating the women in this convent, these these Protestant, you know, teenage and young adult women, um, into sort of various sexual depravity, uh, various kind of nightmare scenarios that that seem straight out of you know 2016's Pizzagate and the the sort of QAnon grooming. Sort of accusations. The, the main difference, and again, I found this really fascinating research in the book, is that in the original version, it is not children; it is primarily um, adult, or at least like teenage women who are who are the victims. And and this this playbook won't get um, changed to focus on children until the seventies with the rise of feminism. Basically, so basically, so these these people become convinced that these women are being abused in this sort of torture dungeon, which is this convent. They're producing, you know, as a result of these rapes, they're, um, you know, being impregnated, and the the infants are being um, murdered and buried in the basement. And you know, again, you think of like the the Pizzagate accusations that Comet Pizza in Washington D.C. has this basement where terrible things are going on, and of course, Comet Pizza has no basement. Um, but um, this this ultimately leads to in eighteen in August of eighteen thirty four, um, a riot which turned out to be quite mellow and laid back there was not a lot of spontaneity about it there was just a sort of kind of growing um when you read the letters and the 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 accounts of these people it's sort of just like a kind of hey you know if you're not doing anything monday we're gonna burn down the convent you should come join us you know and um and and sure enough they do they they get all the women out um and they you know proudly you know proclaim we're liberating you and these women are basically like you're kicking me out of my home. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, they go down to the basement expecting to find all these corpses of infants. Of course they find nothing, um, other than, you know, uh, like a burial chamber for, you know, priests and nuns, which they promptly desecrate. Uh, and then they burn the thing to the ground. Um, and that, um, you know, one of the things I found very funny is that, you know, Boston of all cities is very proud of its riots. I mean, it's all, you know, uh, the Boston Tea Party is, is, uh, you know, a founding myth of Boston, you know, we, you know, Bostonians love talking about how they, they riot either over tea or the Red Sox or whatever. Um, But this, this riot um, has been all but obliterated from, you know, Massachusetts history. And I think, you know, there's there, again, there's something about that historical amnesia that that I try to sort of, uh, discuss again and again in the book and, and why we, we write some stories out of, uh, uh, out of the history of records.
0: When it comes to immigration, so there's Catholic immigration that continues over several decades. And then there's Chinese immigration to the U.S. Then there's the Jewish immigration um, to the U.S. And they come from a variety of places, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, et cetera. Um, and the, it seems like the anti-Jewish conspiracies take on a different bent than the anti-Catholic conspiracies.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's it's a really strange thing. I mean, when I when I say that there's something specific and unique about anti-Semitism, I I, I don't in any way mean to downplay any of the other you know bigotry and racism that um, you know is leveled against other groups. And I you know I, I think they're all horrible and miserable. But um, but structurally, anti-Semitism is is a very weird ideology. It's unlike you know again, unlike say anti-black racism, which um, sort of presumes a kind of superiority of white people. Um, anti-Semitism simultaneously sort of argues that that Jews are degenerate and subordinate quote unquote um, but also have an immense amounts of power are in control of everything and I think that it's it's a bigotry which is bound up in a in a series of purposeful paradoxes um the you know Jews are simultaneously alleged to be Rapacious capitalists, sort of hyper-capitalists who are only interested in money and the accumulation of money, and simultaneously accused of being Bolshevik communists who are out to destroy capitalism. Um, so there's there's all these paradoxes that that exist in anti-Semitism, which is which is fairly unique to its constitution. And that's because I think ultimately there's something almost sort of Like, you know, what what I sort of describe and sort of, you know, map in the in the second half of the book is um, conspiracy theories sort of gradually take on an almost sort of quasi theological aspect. You know, the the guy who who coins the term conspiracy theory in 1947, Karl Popper, um, has this line, you know, the conspiracy theory of society happens when you get rid of God and ask what's in its place Um, to presuppose that, you know, the Illuminati or the Jews are, quote unquote, behind it all. Is a way of basically saying to yourself that that everything that happens has a cause, even if it doesn't make sense. No matter what is going on, whether or not it's um, you know the the war in Ukraine or the reason I got a flat tire, it's because you know the Jews run the media or whatever. You know, it's it's this idea that there is there's this. Um, that that the Jews, had, you know, again to to follow Karl Popper, that that the Jews have replaced God as the catch-all explanatory mechanism of society. And no matter how weird and confusing the day-to-day world is, the only possible explanation is that it's part of this terrible plan uh, that is known only to the elders of Zion. And it's coming to fruition before our
0: eyes. It's fascinating because, you know, I haven't covered Washington for nearly two decades. You know, people always want to ascribe. there's some sort of plan. There's a plan. There's a plan. I was like, you know, people in Washington, a lot of them are pretty incompetent in what they do. Sometimes it's just, um, you know, th- there's always this need to ascribe malicious intent for things that are sometimes just pure incompetence. Oh,
1: yeah. What's the line in All the President's Men, which I come back to again and again, is, you know, the truth is these aren't very bright men and things got out of hand. You know, I think that, You know, that explains a great deal of what we're seeing. But, you know, I think, yeah, like, I mean, one of the things that I I talked about, I talk about in the book again, is that is, you know, if you want like an actual literal conspiracy, one that is not a fictitious conspiracy theory, I think, you know, the Iraq war counts in the sense that you have a a group of powerful politicians in America who decided they wanted to go to war, um, invented a a story that we now universally all recognize as being fictitious um, as a means of sort of building support for this war. But that's like these are the most powerful men in the world. This is the, the world, the, the best army human history has ever seen um, set out with a very deliberate plan and they, they screwed it up. They couldn't make it happen. Yeah. You know? So like actual, actual conspiracies um, are, can be successful, but are subject to the same amount of chaos and randomness and unpredictability that modern day life is. But A conspiracy theorist uh, sort of refuses to admit that. The whole idea about a conspiracy theory is that it's perfect and it's always flawlessly executed. There's always a sense that everything that is happening is happening because the Illuminati or whomever is doing things exactly according to
0: plan. Well, we saw this a lot um, in the 2020 election aftermath, right? Where Q is like, wait, you just wait. The day that they're going to arrest Biden is March 22nd. Uh, Trump's going to take over again in August. Um, And it just continues. And despite the fact, and I'd love for you to explain kind of what happens here, kind of uh, psychologically, despite the fact that like, this one was wrong, and that call was wrong, and that call was wrong, and that call was wrong, people still continue to believe And stay committed. Well, sure. This
1: is like this is like your garden variety, um, you know, mall psychic, right? You know, somebody reading your your palm or your fortune. You know, how does that work? They throw a lot of things, uh, throw a lot of darts at the wall, um, see what you respond to, get a couple lucky coincidences, and then from there, um, you forget all of the misses, you and you focus on the uh, you know the 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 hits, and and so. You know, QAnon, like Nostradamus, like all these things, um, is a system where you just throw out as many different ideas, and when one of them is right, you say, "Oh, look, I'm a I'm a psychic," and when one of them is wrong, you forget about it and you move
0: on. One of the things you delve into is conspiracies on the right versus the left. Um, how each side uh, develops theirs. I mean, obviously, you talk much more about the right here. Uh, talk to me about um, how each side. Uh, develops his theories uh, i mean actually it, you know one of the interesting examples we just discussed is anti-semitism where anti-semitism on the right is you know these people are are below us Anti-Semitism on the left is these people are the elites <laughs> controlling everything
1: yeah i mean again yeah i think you know i i i went into this with a you know fairly open mind i found i think i found that this particular version of conspiracy theory the idea of a secret society is almost always mobilized by the right. But, you know, it's it's not entirely. And I think, you know, most commonly, um, there's the kind of anti-government conspiracy theories that, you know, that are uh, popular on the left. And, and again, not without evidence. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the CIA and the FBI and, um, are, are two of the, the organizations that I talk about in the book that like actually would fit the definition of most conspiracy theorists' definition of, of a secret society, a group working together behind the scenes to violate... American laws is something that's been true of both the CIA and the FBI and has sort of created this this perpetual paranoia on the left about the American government.
0: Right. There's reasonable evidence to understand why people believe certain things might happen based on just the recent history of what J. Edgar Hoover and the CIA in the 60s and 70s was up to.
1: Sure. Of course. Yeah. And so, again, what what I'm interested in in terms of the left um, is that moment when it ceases to be Sort of based on evidence and probability, and and moves in again to this idea of a a kind of quasi-theological explanation for the world. Um, If you if you believe that fossil fuel companies are you know just terrible capitalists who are you know basically extracting as much thing you know as much wealth they can while the party's going uh, without any care to the future, that that seems saying and, nel- and and normal to me if if you see global warming as part of a nefarious plot organized by oil company executives who are you know engineering world events to their benefit again suddenly it's moved into this this larger explanatory mechanism for the chaos and the randomness of the world and that's that's to me where it sort of shades into a, a conspiracy theory rather than just a kind of you know critique of of an industry or something like that
0: so some modern numbers here Half of Americans believe the U.S. government is hiding a new world order or some sort of Illuminati. One-fifth of Americans believe in Illuminati control of the world. One out of four Americans believe that 9-11 was coordinated or allowed to happen in some way by the U.S. government against ourselves. One out of six Americans, this is a scary one, believe the global system is controlled by Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Where are we, historically speaking? I mean, I imagine you don't have good survey Gallup data from 1790, 1850, 1940. But we do speak right now, Colin, at a time of rampant mistrust for the government and institutions.
1: Yeah, we sure do. And you know, I, one of the things I found is that um, while conspiracy theories are, are endemic to American history and they've always been with us, they often accompany um, you know technological changes. One of the one of the great sort of little tidbits that I found really fascinating is um, in the 1830s. There's a a, a minor but important. Innovation in printing technology um, that suddenly allows you to print things a lot cheaper than before. And so a small group of abolitionists are able to capitalize on this this printing innovation to send uh, anti slavery leaflets to, you know, darn near every household in the South. Um, And just because it's suddenly cheaper. The white slave owners in the South who um, don't understand this technological shift immediately sees upon this as a conspiracy theory that somehow the the abolitionists are this massive network, this massive secret society that is infiltrated everywhere. So we're definitely in a moment where technology is exacerbating, I think, some of these things. But I, I do want to be clear in the book about not giving ourselves a pass. Um, the One of the co-founders of Twitter has this line about social media is that um, – you know, everybody looks at a, at a car wreck, we kind of just can't help ourselves. Uh, what social media does is it says, Oh, people like car wrecks, let's give them more of that, you know? And so we believe these things because we want to believe them. Um, they, they, you know, the people who believe them find a kind of existential comfort or affirmation or, or a pleasure in believing them. And the, the way out is going to involve some amount of, you know, regulation of, of, People like Facebook and Twitter, if we're lucky, but it's also going to require a an attempt to to address this this desire, this existential need for conspiracy theories that that so many of us seem to have.
0: When you look at the history here, um, how do some of these conspiracies die or die out or, you know, w- come down from their peak? Is there a successful um, strategy that opponents, uh, the you know, people who are living closer to reality take on? Is it just a matter of time and these things die out generationally? Um, what have you found when you looked at the last couple of hundred years?
1: Yeah, it's not great. Um, you know, I mean, a, a lot of times. So one thing is that these these moral panics tend to take one of two routes. Either they will go to the courts uh, like Salem or the McCarthy hearings or the satanic panic um, of the 1980s and people will go to jail. People will get convicted. People might even get you know executed, as was Salem um and then it kind of it will kind of die out from there um and if if the courts are not amenable then oftentimes these things end end in riots and i think january 6th is a great example of that you know the conspiracy theory built this this moral panic this social panic about the election uh trump was not successful at swaying the judiciary um and so they took to the streets you know and this is something that you know the uh, you know again and again you find riots sort of born out of you know, anti-Catholic conspiracy theories, anti-Jewish conspiracy theories over and over again. So in, in some ways, these things sort of burn out when they burn out. I think that what I wanted to do is really address the fact that almost as soon as these things die out, we, we tend to forget them. By the 90s, nobody really cared about the satanic panic. Nobody was thinking about it. everybody just wanted to forget that it happened. It was a weird anomaly that really didn't affect.
0: Wait, anybody. real briefly, and, explain the satanic panic of the 80s. I mean, and so in the
1: 1980s, there were, um, many people became convinced that in daycares and suburban homes across the country, um, there were secret cabals of Satanists who were, uh, forcing children to participate in these, um, sexual rituals, um, that involved human sacrifice. Um, the, the testimony entirely came from small young children who were, um, coerced in, in very obvious ways to manufacture testimony that was not only not reliable, but it was on its face, factually impossible. Um, and yet testimony from these children was used to send dozens of people to jail, um, who were given, you know, lengthy, you know, some people were given prison sentences, um, you know, 10, hundreds, hundreds of years, you know, like really insane shit. Um, sorry. Um, but, um, <laughs> I don't know if I can swear on this no, podcast. No, it's all good. Uh but but it it was insane. Um and um you know and, and and people spent people spent decades. Um people lost custody of their kids um and didn't see them for for you know, 10, 15 years before they were finally able to get their freedom because none of this was based on anything. Um, and as soon as it kind of died out, you know, famously with the, the McMartin Preschool in Southern California, which um, was the, the kind of center of these allegations uh, and was the subject of the longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history um, that, that failed to produce conviction. Um, by the 90s, this had sort of people had forgotten about it and um, nobody wanted to talk about it. So when... Pizzagate and QAnon reappeared basically using the same playbook. Uh, Everybody acted as though this was some sort of, you know, kooky fringe thing that nobody could possibly take seriously and wasn't worth our time, you know, until a guy shows up with an AR-15 shooting up a pizza place, you know. And so what I want to do with this book is to impress upon people that we are prone to a kind of historical amnesia about these things. And it's the, the amnesia that allows the next one to build up, you know, fuel like a forest fire, and and if we are able to be more vigilant on these things, um, then when the next one comes along, we can get out ahead of it. Hopefully,
0: translate vigilance for me in a practical in a practical way: society, education, et cetera. Because it's so interesting, Colin. You know, you know, we, we got to be vigilant, and I think there's it's certain people who will always be vigilant. But how do you? Um, stay vigilant? How do you how do you increase education about these things? Because, you know, uh, social media, you you mentioned the Evan Williams quote there from Twitter, that, you know, social media is putting up these car crashes, you know, every 10 feet for us now, because they're like, oh, you love car crashes, we're gonna feed you more and more and more, because we think you're gonna believe it. And eventually you do.
1: Vigilance takes, you know, it takes a lot of, of things. I mean, and one, partly, I think it's just, it's just that sort of, Um, historical awareness that, that this is, this is, this is a replay of the, of these things, you know, QAnon is a replay of the satanic panic. Um, And so when people are, I think when you confront somebody with the fact of like, you know, we've, we've gone through this before it, it forces them at least on some level to, to put the bar for believability up a little bit higher. Um, You know, so that, that they're, they're maybe not as susceptible but simultaneously, I think you also have to understand that um, people believe these things because, you know, as I said before, they do something for them. They want to um, they want to believe, you know, they're looking for permission to have a feeling. You know, again, like, you know, you think of any garden variety racist who knows on some level that having a racist attitude towards the Jews is uh, impolite, is, is not a thing he can do in, in polite society. But if you give them a conspiracy theory you know, oh, the Jews control the media. Then suddenly it seems like, oh, now my my racism is justified, and I feel better about it. You know, so so trying to understand what it is, you know, I mean, I think with the, the current moral panic about about trans people, to circle back to kind of where we started with this idea of groomers. I mean, um, people, I don't know. I, I think at some level, people are are afraid that their children are not going to turn out like them. They're not going to have the same values as them. They're not going to look like them. They're not going to bleed. You know that that causes some people some existential anxiety. And when you're having that existential anxiety about your own kid, even if your own kid is cis, it's not, you know, not interested in, you know, being, or isn't trans in any way, you can still look at the kind of rise in visibility of trans Americans and their fight for equality and, you know, um, happiness. And, and maybe you, you start to sort of fixate on that because it, it signals to you the way in which you, you know, the children are, are under threat and it, gives a narrative towards, you know, your own anxiety about, you know, why your kid won't talk to you when she comes home from school. I don't, you know, I mean, it's that, kind of that kind of stuff. So. I
0: mean, and you're certainly seeing it appear with the, you know, uh, various aspects of the parental rights movement and the, you know, yeah. uh, push to ban books and school libraries, et cetera. Uh, you, you cite a couple of examples. I want to end here of people who's, you know, lost family members or spouses uh, to these theories. Um, and it's a question I often get, which is like, how do I ask questions or, have a conversation with a loved one, a friend or a family member who uh, has either entered the rabbit hole, gone deep down the rabbit hole. Um, what have what did you find as you wrote this book about, I don't know, the most practical ways to approach that? Are there ways to pull people out of that rabbit hole? Um, how do you converse with those people?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to understand is it's a long process. Um, I think a lot of people think that you know, their racist uncle is going to show for Thanksgiving and they're going to be able to drop that, you know, one or two pithy comments and he's going to see the light of way, <laughs> you know, of his ways. And that's going to be it. And I, I, you know, I fundamentally don't think that's that's true. I mean, I think of like, for example, I think, of, you know, I am I am 100 uh, percent pro-choice in all aspects. And I think of like somebody what would it take for somebody to convince me that we should uh, outlaw abortion? Like a, nothing. You know, So like – so I'm going to – I'm not going to go into a conversation with somebody where I know that their beliefs are so firmly held that I don't have a chance. Like what – you know, what's the point? Then we're just yelling at when each other.
0: When Obama releases a birth certificate that didn't convince anyone who didn't believe that no, he was born in Kenya. exactly, right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so, so instead it's a question of like, well, what is this belief doing for this person, right? What, What – to believe that Obama was born in Kenya – what, what is that? Is that an anxiety about a black man having power? Is that, um, a refusal to believe that democratic policies are popular? Is that, you know, like what, what is the thing that, what is the existential drive that is leading that person to embrace that conspiracy? What, what sort of, what emotion does that conspiracy theory give that person permission to embrace, you know, um, that's, that's what I think the question is. And if you start there, if you start like, what is it doing for them? What is that emotion? What is it? Why does it make them feel good or safe to embrace that conspiracy theory? Then you can work on that emotion. You can, you can, you know, again, it's a long, slow process, but you can start to say, okay, are there other things that will give that person that same feeling or, you know, affirm them in the same way that aren't destructive? Um, you know, and, and sort of, you know, Kind of work backwards from there, I think.
0: So what you're saying is approach them more like a therapist and less like a debating society. You're not going yeah, to exactly. yeah. use yeah. logic to argue them out of something. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you
1: need to have the facts on your side. I think you need to be ready to deploy them. Um, but I don't think that barking facts at somebody has ever worked because I don't think that's what this is about for these people.
0: Colin Dickey, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Appreciate the book. The book is Under the Eye of Power How Fear of Secret Societies Shape American Democracy. It's a fascinating look at our history. And anyone who thinks they know uh, about American history, this is a, a different narrative, um, a different way to connect the dots, uh, and some really uh, incredibly interesting, uh, fascinating, scary at times, anecdotes about American society.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was a really great conversation. Thanks a lot.
0: All right. I want to thank Colin Dickey again for that fascinating conversation. You can get his new book, Under the Eye of Power, wherever you get your books. We have a link in the show notes. As we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access and exclusive access to content like this, as well as membership on our private Instagram page. That is where we answer questions, give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse at what we're doing, and do deep dives on issues, really getting behind the stories and people in the news. It's a way of supporting what we're doing here at Mo News, supporting independent journalism. So appreciate if you could all head right now to mo.news slash Premium. To become a member, it is just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.